This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsight owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Win Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blute. On today's show, we've got a bunch of great topics. We'll talk about, number one, uh, Bill Gates pushing for a nu- new nuclear power plant in Wyoming. We'll talk about the future of uh, nuclear and why it's getting some pushback from the wind industry and others. We'll talk about Vestas and Maersk. Rosemary's going to come out. She's going to maul me about my pronunciation of this in a moment. Uh, their container deal and what that means for transportation for them. Uh, We'll talk about a French couple who has won a lawsuit about their health in relation to a wind farm that was installed near their homes. Uh, We'll talk about the Dominion's explanation of their $10 billion price tag for their coastal Virginia wind project. There was a blade that fell off a wind turbine in Froya. Maybe I got that one right. Could be 0 for 2. We'll see my pronunciation tonight. Um, we'll talk about NREL with their 3D printing approach for winter and blades. They've got some new thermoplastic stuff that they've just announced. Siemens Gamesa has produced their first green hydrogen from a project. And lastly, we'll talk about a drone attack on a power grid. This is certainly not going to be the last attack of its sort. And we've actually mentioned this recently about subsea cables and their potential vulnerabilities. So we'll kind of go back and, and full circle there and talk through this story a little bit. But before we get going, be sure to subscribe to Uptime Tech News, which you'll find in the show notes or description of today's podcast, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, which you'll also find in the description. And Alan, let's start with you. So we're going to push right here into nuclear. So obviously nuclear power has a bad rap because we get that you know big emotional response from Chernobyl and just the disaster that it caused. Uh, but in reality, it's actually quite safe, and it does not contribute to CO2 emissions. So, Alan, take us through this this Bill Gates situation. He's backing this experimental nuclear, nuclear power plant in Wyoming, but not everyone is on board with this. Right, and this is something that uh, Gates and it sounds like Warren Buffett have, have been invested in for a number of years, trying to develop lower-cost nuclear power, more modular, smaller plants that are – more economical to, to build and to, to control. And there's a company called TerraPower, which has been doing all the, the legwork and infrastructure to design these new next generation of nuclear power plants. And uh, a couple of years ago, sort of pre-COVID, they were planning on building plants in China so that they would the Chinese would government would stop building coal plants. That was that was the the goal was to re- reduce the amount of CO two emissions and the sulfur emissions into the air by helping the Chinese develop this more compact, more economical, and yet highly productive uh, nuclear plants. Basically, to lower the CO two emissions out in the world because China is a leading uh, emis- emissions from CO two. 
So that was the game plan. And then COVID happened and the Trump administration happened and there, there became a, a limitation on nuclear technology traveling to China. So that left all the investors sort of stuck. And so now they've come back around and, and found a site in Wyoming uh, to, to build this uh, basically a demonstrator. It's really what it is of, of a new next generation nuclear facility. And it's supposed to be safer. It's supposed to, to use the nuclear material more efficiently. And, and, and there's discussions about using uh, existing waste material in this facility so we can actually uh, recycle some of the nuclear material we already have. That's the goal. And the that seems like, to me, on the outside, like, the, all right, yeah, if Bill Gates and Warren Buffett wanted to spend some money uh, to, the, to see if this concept works, great. Like, all right, try it, right? They're not building a ginormous plant. They're building something on a small scale. But the pushback in the renewable industry is – overwhelming right now. It seems like it's way too much and it sort of discredits the whole purpose of of where some of the renewable industry is trying to get to, which is to reduce CO2 emissions. Nuclear reduces CO2 emissions. We can have discussions about how much nuclear costs and the power produced by nuclear. That's a valid discussion. But in terms of reducing CO2 emissions, Elon Musk has basically said the same thing, which is you have to include nuclear. If you don't include it, then you probably are not going to get to the gains that you want to fast enough. And so I think there, I think in the renewable side, on the sort of the wind and solar uh, groups, like you should welcome the reduction in CO2 emissions that somebody else is trying something new, just like we have been doing in wind and what we've been doing in solar. We've been trying a lot of things that are new. It's okay. It's not a threat to the industry. It's not a threat to wind. It's not really a threat to solar. Uh, they can all play together. And I, I think one that's just a little frustrating when we seem like we become irrational. Right? I, I think there's too much push on the, on the negative side and saying Bill Gates is an evil guy and is trying to rule the world and blah, 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 blah. And nuclear, nuclear power doesn't, is not as efficient as wind power in terms of its, its cost per megawatt hour. Okay, those are discussions we can have. But if Bill Gates is putting his money into it, He's put a little bit of mine into it, by the way, because the government's supporting this. But if he's putting a lot of his money in it, then it's sort of his risk and good. I think we need to get to that. We need to get to that next step. And Rosemary, if we had stopped developing wind turbines back in the 1970s, then we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. And we've, we've limited nuclear to the 1970s. And if we look at nuclear 2020, it's going to look a lot different. So is, is there a potential opening here to at least look at it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm not so extreme as many renewable energy enthusiasts, in my opinion, on nuclear. Um, I, I think, like Dan said at the start, like the safety concerns, like when you look at the actual, you know, number of deaths per megawatt hour produced, it's one of the, the very safest um, technologies overall. And I do think that it was a real shame that um, there was, you know, such a, a really sudden withdrawal from nuclear from a lot of countries after um, Fukushima. So, yeah, I definitely, I think that. I am anti-nuclear 
for Australia, not strongly, but just purely because we don't have any nuclear yet. And I think that it's a big distraction that allows people to not do any of the, you know, like real decarbonisation stuff that we could be doing in Australia because we just perpetually have this argument about whether we should be doing nuclear or not. And I think that that same sort of argument is why people get really frustrated with Bill Gates. Um, I personally don't think that he has um, my long-term view of the energy transition is very different to his. I think that he still seems to be like he he has an idea that I would consider pretty old fashioned that we're waiting for waiting for a new technology to come to save us from climate change. Whereas I think that we have the technologies that we need and what we need to do is spend a lot of effort into into rolling them out. But all that said, um, for me, the thing about nuclear is just a, an economic disagreement, you know, um, do the proponents of nuclear and especially small modular nuclear say that it's going to be much more economic than it has been in the past because, you know, you're going to have more units, although not that, I mean, to call it small is a bit of a stretch, you know, like it's not like a one megawatt wind turbine or something. It's, you know, they're still, they're still pretty big. You're still not going to have that many of them to be able to get like a lot of scale effects, in my opinion. So, you know what? I want to see less talk about whether this is could be cheaper in the future and more like testing out whether it will be. Bill Gates thinks nuclear is the answer and it can be more economic and he's got the financial means to try it out and that's exactly what we what we need. You know, try, try it. See if your assumptions are right and try it as soon as possible so that, you know, you, you know early on whether we should pursue this path or not. But I've got I've got no problem with um, private money being being used for that. Um, I think it's just what people get upset about. And what I would get upset about is if we say we're going to do nuclear instead of wind and solar and batteries and, and everything. And I, I did get the impression that that's what's happening here. So I'm all for trying it out, seeing seeing how the economics goes. Well, and of course, I feel like we all forget that there is nuclear power in the U.S. I mean, there's one down the street from Washington, D.C. in Louisa, Virginia. It's the uh, Lake Anna um, nuclear generation plant, and they have 1.79 gigawatts. And I found this out because we went on a family vacation down there last year during COVID, swam in that super warm, creepy, (laughs) creepy lake. Yeah, the lake is like 95 degrees. It's the most disturbingly warm (laughs) water you've ever uh, swum in. So, but yeah, that's, I mean, that thing was built in 1978 and it's been kicking for almost 50 years now and um, seemingly perfectly safe, right? I mean, um, but when people hear about this in the uh, news cycle, it still just has that cringy, that scary um, connotation. But Dan, I think one of the things that we all need to consider here is what are you going to take offline when nuclear is possible? You would take off all the carbon emitting, carbon dioxide emitting power plants. That's what you would do. So if the goal is to reduce CO2 emissions, I think it has to be part of the equation because wind and solar in the United States are not going to ever equal up the ability of the coal and natural gas and whatever else plants that we have here today. So if we shut all those plants down and we don't have anything to replace it with, we're going to – the United States in particular will have a hard time operating. So we have to find something to fill those in. And and Rosemary, go back to your point a little bit. It takes a lot of space 
to put the equivalent amount of wind turbines or solar in than it does to put a nuclear facility in. So if we're talking about real estate, I think that the, the first off, the, the, the footprint's a lot smaller than it would be for wind or solar. And the second is the recycling bit of it, which is always a problem for all. solar is, is a big recycling problem, as we well know. Uh, the recycling thing we've kind of gotten figured out. You're going to store the, the waste, whatever waste is going to be generated by nuclear on the same footprint space. It just stays there. And, and, and possibly be reused again. I mean, the way technology is moving. So I, I have a really hard time saying there's no room for nuclear. I think in order to have a developing economy or a growing economy, you're going to need power. In order to get power, you're going to fire up oil-driven, gas-driven power plants, or you're going to have to move to something else. And it can't be, unless I'm wrong, I mean, I, I could be totally wrong on this. I, I don't think solar and wind are going to be able to Fill that entire gap in some of these larger countries. Am, am I way off on that? I think I think you're totally totally wrong on that, Alan. <laughs> no, not totally wrong. I think um, solar and wind and other kinds of storage definitely can. Um, y- you know, even 10, 20 years ago, we we could have um, moved the world to a completely um, clean electricity system at, at just immense cost and now that cost is a lot uh, less and in the future we'll see it you know move move further and then you know you add nuclear it certainly makes it a lot of a, a smaller transition because nuclear much more closely mimics the types of generation that we've got now we're used to baseload with you know a little bit of um, variable for, for peaking so that would be easier but how much will it will it cost and um, I don't think anyone would argue that nuclear's um, cost reduction curve is going to be nearly as steep as you know solar wind and, and batteries which are you know have got great economies of scale and you know we, we've already they've been demonstrated to just you know exceed expectations for price reductions year after year after year I don't think anyone thinks that nuclear is going to reduce as as steeply you know whether it reduces I don't think it's reduced it at all actually in recent history I think price has actually gone up per megawatt hour because people are a lot more safety conscious and because there's a lot less being installed so I'll accept that there's um, cost reduction potential I don't know how much I think if you leave nuclear out of the discussion, then you are, you know, leaving out the possibility of finding the cheaper solution. Um, and like I said before, like I wouldn't shut down any nuclear power plants unless they were unsafe. Like I think Japan's reaction to their crisis is um, understandable. And, and I think every other country's is probably a bit of an overreaction. Um, that's what I would personally, personally do. But yeah, I would look to the future and, and say, you know, like you, you leave all options on, on the table and assess them on their economic benefits. To me, that's the way that we get the fastest transition is by, you know, like letting technologies compete on, on cost because, you know, when, when it's about the economics, you don't have to get government saying, oh, we need to do this, this, this and this. You just kind of, you know, let people, <laughs> let people, business people figure out how, how they're going to allocate um, the resources to get the the fastest transition. So, yeah, I've got nothing nothing against nuclear. I just I just suspect that it's not going to have the price reductions that its proponents say it will. And I'm really happy to be proven wrong by you know this project and others. If um, yeah, if that's the case. Yeah, I, I think we we don't know yet. And because we've in the United States, we have essentially stopped all nuclear development since the 1970s. So we don't know how far it will go. And we need to do something new and to check out the technology to show it it will or will not work. Because if they do 
create something that has a massive sort of scale and also uh, reasonable energy prices, then I think it comes back into the discussion again because there there are some places on in this on this planet where it will be very hard to get wind or solar to be the main thrust. In Australia, different situation, right? Uh, uh, and I, I think there's definitely a renewable future in front of Australia. I'm not sure everybody else is in that same boat. So let's. I, I, I'm I'm of the opinion like let Bill Gates go for a little while. Let's see how this plays out instead of killing the guy all the time. Let it play out, and you may be right. You may be totally right. And, you know that Bill Gates has got money. He's he's not he's not going to you know go hungry at night if this thing goes belly up. It won't <laughs> bother him. But if it works, it could be beneficial for everybody. So I'm willing to let it play out. I would love it if if nuclear was something cheap we could roll out a lot. That would really and, and fast. That's the other thing is that I think that um, it's not going to be so fast to restart a nuclear industry, even in the US where you you have have one already. Um, that would be so much easier, technically speaking. But uh, yeah, I just um, I'm skeptical. But it's you know put your money where where your sure. mouth is, and he is yeah. yeah. Well, and just like solar, there's obviously environmental concerns of where you can put it, not not to mention not wanting to have it too close to major um, areas of people, but also uh, the site in, in uh, Virginia was found to have a risk of earthquake of only one in 22,000 each year. So obviously they don't want to put this, like there's not a nuclear plant going in Louisiana, right? It's Hurricane right. Central. Yeah. Um, or in Kansas, where a tornado is going to run through it sooner or later. So just like solar or wind or anywhere else, there's it's only going to fit certain locales. Um, sounds like they they did their diligence in Wyoming, and that's going to make sense out there. But yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll see. So moving on, um, Myersk and Vestas have signed a, a big deal, which essentially gives Vestas first crack and direct access to container capacity at a fixed price. And that's going to be where they can get parts shipped directly from their ports to uh, manufacturers and warehouses, et cetera, et cetera, which seems like it makes a lot of sense. Now, Rosemary, you're about to give me a clinic in how to pronounce Myersk as a lowly <laughs> American. So it please, now. <laughs> no, I'm not. Well, I forgot. I'm trying to produce this it, podcast the best before. I can. And I'm overwhelmed. My internal memory of my brain um, <laughs> <laughs> Trying to think two words ahead, uh, I've, I've lost it. So fill me in, Maersk, Maersk, right? Maersk, exactly. That's, that's better. Yeah, perfect. That was that was great. Yeah, Maersk. Okay, thanks. So Rosemary, <laughs> what's your take here? Obviously, shipping, logistics, all that good stuff. Uh, we've talked about how raw materials are getting more uncertain in the future. It seems like Vestas just wants to lock down. Like, hey, we want to make sure we know we have containers. We know we have the shipping logistics. Um, in the distant future. Does this seem like a good move for them? Yeah, I think so. I've been surprised actually at how much um, supply chain logistics is affecting everything, literally everything, not not just renewable energy, not just wind, but, you know, any anything at all. So I, I think a lot of companies have been surprised too. You know, um, we've had this big push towards lean <laughs> lean manufacturing where you kind of just have everything just in time you don't have big warehouses full of um, full of stuff and I know uh, that's you know starting to look less like a, a really good strategy for for this year at least and probably into the future so yeah it's tricky tricky for for companies to predict what the future is going to be because you know if the problem just goes away um, 
quickly, then obviously investors will probably be overpaying for this extra security. But I guess it's about mitigating mitigating risks because projects all over the world in any kind of industry are just seeing delay, 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 cost increase, cost increase, cost increase. And um, yeah, so uh, I think any any business would be looking to, towards trying to reduce some of the risk of that getting worse in the future. So moving on, um, there's a French couple who has been in a legal battle over a wind farm that said that it affected their health, uh, you know, turbine syndrome, which could include headaches, insomnia, irregularities of their heart, depression, dizziness, tinnitus, nausea. Um, and they basically said that once some forestry or some uh, is forestry, forestry is the active forestry is a verb, right? Once some forest land was felled near them through the act of forestry. <laughs> Perhaps um, <laughs> that that sound that sound barrier. See, we're all learning about language here today on Uptime. Um, that sound barrier was removed, and they said this got significantly worse. Where essentially their quote was that it was comparable to a washing machine continually turning, and of course the reflection from the white blades obviously can cause shadows and, and reflecting light in general. So. Um, Alan, they won their uh, litigation. They were awarded more than 100,000 uh, pounds in compensation. And I guess the question is... Euros. Oh, euros. Got it. I'm learning a lot today. This is a great day for me. So, um, <laughs> so do are we going to see more of these? Is this going to open the floodgates or is this sort of a one-off kind of thing? Well, I, I think France wants us to make this a one-off thing, but I don't see how you keep it one off obviously there's just a very unique situation in which they had a buffer of trees in between them and the wind turbines and they are 700 meters so i'll put that in american it's about a half a mile away from the wind turbines that's not really really that close uh but they felt some health effects from it or they think they felt some health effects from it and, and brought up a suit and i don't think once you establish that precedent it gets really hard to stop it. You can say all you want about it. it's not precedent, it's not precedent, but it is precedent. And maybe there are unique situations about it, but those things tend to creep. And I, unless uh, France comes in and, act, and prohibits lawsuits of this particular type, I don't know how you're going to stop it. Uh, we're going to see more lawsuits in the United States. We already have seen a lot of lawsuits in the United States. And we're trying to work around those things. I think that the real key for engineers is that we can't, you know, we can't put people underneath wind turbines and we need to be considerate of, of where people live. And this is, it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And I, I think if, if they would have left the trees as the buffer in between, they could have saved themselves 100,000 euros. It seems like you could plant a lot of trees instead of paying out that kind of, funds. So I'm, I'm just curious as to why they didn't choose that as a better option. And I, I know in the States, especially as we get, and Rosemary's going to see the same thing in Australia, when we start putting up a number of wind turbines, particularly offshore, we're going to have a ton of complaints about it. Uh, people about expensive offshore properties and there's a flicker, right? Or my sunset has changed or my sunrise has changed. Uh, and, you know, it's just never, it's just going to be never ending. So unless... There's something done legislatively. I don't see how it's going to stop. 
they're, they all sort of spiral on one another. So if you start to focus and fixate on the wind turbines and the noise, yeah. it'll never go away, right? And yeah. I mean, I lived mm. in a different apartment early in the summer and a nightclub moved beneath me. I was on the second floor and their bass <laughs> was pounding through the floorboards. And even as I tried to mitigate it, I eventually moved out because I couldn't. I mean, it was just like so intense. But as I, even as I tried to, it was just so present in my brain, my irritation at the sound. It's like you're seeking the sound out. And at that point, it's like the problem is never going to be solved. So I can imagine if you're living near these turbines, you can't just like go about your merry way and be present in every other activity and, and just forget they exist. You're probably going to be so hyper-focused on that sound that you hear, you hear it even when they're not even turning sometimes, right? That's how humans yeah. sort of are when you get disturbed. I think there's two different issues here that kind of get conflated because there's one about like noise, audible noise, and we already know that noise can be annoying and um, all kinds of development have, you know, noise limitations on them, especially, you know, including wind turbines. And I know that that's something that we're very focused on in the industry. You know, you do a lot of modelling before you make a new wind turbine to predict what the wind will be. And then if your modelling turns out to be wrong by a decibel or two, that's <laughs> that can be a huge problem for, for certain cases. So the noise part of it, is, I, I think that that's pretty well understood. You can also easily measure it, you know, get a, like an objective measurement of what the noise is and there's a limit. You know, same for you. If they put a highway in near your house, you know, like that. There's limits to how much noise can be near houses, so that's understood and um, totally reasonable and not that hard to deal with. Not different to any other kind of engineering or um, construction project. But then the other side of it is this idea of wind turbine syndrome, which is supposedly related to infrasound, which is like low frequency noise, inaudible noise. So it's kind of funny to call it noise if you can't hear it. Um, and infrasound is, is everywhere. It's in, it's in wind, it's in waves, you know, people, um, live near the ocean and love the soothing sound of, of that. So that is, I don't even want to say contentious because if you do a medical review of, um, infrasound and wind turbine syndrome, you won't find any evidence that it harms, um, humans. Um, you'll find a lot of studies that have failed to find any link between um, infrasound levels and, and human health, but it's, you know you can't prove a, a negative, so we just kind of keep on studying and studying. But um, if you're interested to learn more about it, there's this research, I think he's Australian, but I'm not sure, um, called Simon Chapman, and he's been kind of um, logging the um, symptoms that people associate with uh, wind turbine syndrome. He has 247 listed in his book, and I'm just reading a quote in a, a paper that he wrote. These include lung cancer, skin cancer, hemorrhoids, gaining weight, losing weight, and my favorite, disoriented echidnas. Um, that's a small Australian animal. It looks, looks like a, po <laughs> Dis a porcupine a little bit. Disoriented echidnas. Wow. Yeah. And, mm. and then he goes on to say, but most... <laughs> do, you <know laughs> Sorry, yeah. it, do you know why I know what an echidna is? Because it's an awesome animal. <laughs> Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog had oh, a sidekick no. who was an echidna. That was like the game of my childhood. <laughs> really? Sonic, yep. I, I, I can't I remember what, too, his, what his name was, but huh. it was like maybe like a couple iterations down the road. Sonic and Knuckles, I think was his name. Sonic and Knuckles. Ah. Knuckles the echidna. Well, fun fact, echidnas mm -hmm. are mammals, but they also lay eggs. So Weird. Yeah. Um, Doesn't that violate yeah, the law of mammals? Okay. They also collect rings yeah. at high speed with with head with blue hedgehogs. So, 
Yeah. So anyway, Simon Chapman goes on to say that most of the symptoms are classic symptoms of anxiety, things that can happen to you when you're very worried. And then that um, ties into what you were saying, Dan, where um, these, like, I don't think that people who have wind turbine syndrome are making up their symptoms. It's just, I think that they're misattributed. And so Simon Chapman did a lot of research into why people get wind turbine syndrome and and where, and it's, you know, very clustered in English speaking countries. When I moved to Denmark, no one had even heard of it there, which was, you know, lovely for me because I had been quite sick of, of hearing about it all the time in Australia. And anyway, he found that it, it really follows where certain groups of people went to protest wind farms before they were even built. Where those protesting groups had gone, people got wind turbine syndrome. And where they hadn't, they didn't. So it was like, you know, building up this expectation of negative things happening. And then the symptoms are all very, very common symptoms. Like everyone has headaches sometimes and sometimes has trouble sleeping. When you're looking out for these things that might happen, it's very easy to, yeah, get in the cycle of, oh, you know, all these terrible things are happening to me. You get anxious and then you get more symptoms from the anxiety. And so I think it's a real, a real problem, but the cause isn't from infrasound, from, from wind farms. It's a more of a, a social thing. And what I've learned from the whole wind turbine syndrome thing is that it's not enough to just, you know, look at the technical facts that infrasound does not make people sick directly because actually it's important to know how the community is going to react to things and bring them, bring them on board. And I think a lot of, um, the wind industry were really surprised by wind turbine syndrome, dismissed it for a long time because it seems really ridiculous to a very technically minded person, but it's, it's a real problem. It's just not an engineering problem. And, um, yeah, so it's one of the things that I really like about, you know, communication like this and my YouTube channel is you get feedback from, non-engineers, non-industry professionals about what they're actually concerned and optimistic about with the energy transition. And I, um, yeah, ever since this whole wind turbine syndrome, was quite a big thing in Australia. I, I've never really um, dismissed those community concerns. Um, it's not only about the technology, that's for sure. Yeah, well, and of course, as we talk about them cutting down the forest, and I'm not, it's not clear that the wind turbine company cut down uh, the woodlands, but if you start thinking of like other mitigation strategies, like obviously like in roads, they put a huge sound barrier between a highway and a community, right? There's a suburb right next to it. And so you think, oh, well, they could do this. Well, it's like, well, it, it was certainly going to cost more than 100,000 euros to make a huge wall right next to this couple's land. So it's kind of just like just just pay the settlement and they moved away. And that makes more sense. So, you know, we have these big projects. Sometimes it just makes it more sense to to settle out of court and pay them off. And it's cheaper than changing the the project or the, the barriers that they might need to put in place. So moving on, speaking of big projects, uh, Dominion, they've gotten a lot of questions about why the estimated cost of the coastal Virginia offshore uh, wind farm is increasing to 10 billion and the why the levelized cost of energy for that project is now close to $90 at about 87 is the current projection per megawatt hour. Um, so, Alan, you've been pretty um, dug in with uh, all the, the news on what the Biden administration is doing, uh, both, you know, good and bad as far as trying to get wind stood up here in the U.S. offshore. Um, what's your take here on this increasing project by Dominion? Well, it sounds like the Biden administration is just going to send them a check to offset the increased cost due to inflation. 
And I'm not sure that's a smart move because <laughs> pouring one, more money into an inflationary situation causes more inflation. Uh, so I'm not sure that got vetted by any economists. Obviously, if I'm Dominion, I'm thinking that's great because the cost I can help keep the cost of the project down. It's not money coming out of my pocket. Obviously, Dominion is really trying to make this project go, and they're very aggressive about it. And Siemens Gamesa is participating in building a blade factory in in Virginia to support it. So there's going to be a lot of great things happening around it. I guess the question is, economically, and this is where wind turbines and a lot of renewable industry can get in a pinch, if we get into some sort of economic turmoil, and in particular with rising inflation to really unrecognizable levels, then can we make some of these renewable projects work? And I think that's a really big drawback to what is happening now in the U.S. economy and the world economy is feeling some of the same effects is – Rising inflation is going to really drag down the middle class. It's going to really drag down the lower class of people that can't afford these things. But it's also going to push up projects that we probably need to get done. And again, it, who pays the rates? It's uh, the average Joe citizen is going to pay the rates for this. And so the, the cost of the project does matter. And I, I just think right now, the the biggest thing to help the renewable industry is to control inflation, slow this uh, unfettered inflationary growth down. I'm not sure pouring another trillion and a half dollars into the economy is going to do that. Uh, and on these offshore projects, which I think need to get done, we need to have price stability. That is the one thing that will really kill a project and will kill large corporations that have very slim margins are this unestimated, unpredictable inflation. And until we get that done, this project that Dominion has is going to continue to grow in cost. $10 billion is going to turn to $11 billion, which is going to turn to 12 And we really can't have that happen at this point. I was just um, doing some research on levelized cost of energy. I'm making a video on it at the moment. It's such a, you know, exciting, obviously exciting topic. I've got a, a friend who um, he's a, an accountant and he has a, a website where you can kind of put in cost assumptions and then it will, um, you know, tell you the, the result. So he's made a, a levelized cost of energy calculator for me on his, mm. his like key numbers. And I was really surprised at how much the cost of capital really affects things. And it has got um, an interesting uh, effect on the energy transition as well, because at the moment, the cost of capital for renewables is usually cheaper than it is for fossil fuel projects, because um, banks see it as quite risky that, you know, like a fossil fuel, um, a, a coal power plant has a lifetime of like 40 years. And banks aren't sure that in 40 years it's still going to be, you know, like making the the, the profits that they expect. So the co cost of capital for, for coal especially, but some other fossil fuels is higher than it is for renewables just because of the perceived risk difference. And that's actually like a big a big thing in favour of the uh, of renewables. It makes it much more favourable and has a huge impact on the, the levelised cost of, of um, electricity. So, yeah, it's... Um, I think you're definitely right that the inflationary en environment is 
is increasing costs by a lot. But that said, I, I did look up the – so it's $87 per megawatt hour expected LCOE now for offshore wind. And I know that um, Lazar just put out their latest um, LCOE ranges for – you know, they do it for all the different technologies. And um, the average for offshore wind is $83 per, per megawatt hour. So it's not like way, way, way over the top. I wouldn't like look at that figure and say, wow, this is a project that's been mismanaged or, or anything like that. It's probably – yeah, more, more just in line with yeah the kind of headwinds that any kind of um, capital intensive projects facing at the moment. Yeah, in this particular project, they've they've said that the level of cost of energy is between eighty and ninety dollars. That's where they set those two fence posts at, and it was at eighty seven, mm. right? And so the Biden administration mm. says he's going to pour cash in it because he's going to drive it closer to eighty. Without that cash, I, I think it's going to ex- it was going to exceed ninety, and it still may exceed ninety. By the way. Uh, we're still mm, yeah, four or five years off on this thing. We, we we really don't know until it gets in, into action. But I think that can be really catastrophic in terms of the the like you said the investments that go into this, the ability to return a profit really makes the landscape much scarier. And this is why we think see companies like Siemens, Gamesa, Investus, and GE all being very hesitant to go after some of these offshore projects because inflation is trouble. So moving on, uh, let's talk about a what appears to be maybe a lightning strike. There is a, a wind turbine blade that uh, has fallen off of a turbine in Froya. And Rosemary, I need you to pronunciation check well, it's me. Norwegian, so I'm going to say it's probably like Froya, because they're kind okay. of uh, quite lyrical in their, their accent uh, there. Okay, what she, <laughs> what she said. Um, but it, these turbines are owned and operated by Vestas. And they said that lightning was registered there on Wednesday. Alan, um, again, what is the what is the failure mode when a blade falls off after a lightning strike? Because I mean, most of these strikes are to the tip. I don't mm-hmm. see how the two really connect. It depends on what what kind of blade that it is. I think the blades that have had lightning issues, and this is not Vesta specific, by the way. So generically speaking, blades that have had lightning issues where the blade has come come off have carbon fiber spars or structures internal and if you're going to have lightning take out a blade like that it has to damage the a major structural component really close to the hub and and lightning can do that because carbon is conductive and lightning likes to follow it and even if you try to prevent it from getting into the carbon it's going to get to the carbon if if you had some uncontrolled event where there's energy entering into the carbon, particularly closest to the hub, I think the fatigue will eventually get to the structure and it'll fail. The blade will break off. And so these events are becoming, we're not really common with fiberglass blades. I don't remember fiberglass, pure fiberglass blades breaking off like that unless it was some real manufacturing issue. But with blades with carbon fiber, we're having a little bit of a different reaction here that we we as an industry, it's not particular to an OEM, that we as an industry do not quite got a handle on. And the one thing I point to, and I try to explain to uh, potential customers of ours and people that are interested in, in lightning, is that lightning varies a lot across the world. There's different kinds of lightning. There's different sort of uh, the amount of energy, the amount of current, the way they form, the way they react. It varies based on where you are. And we as uh, the lightning community, I'm a part of this mess, I think, is that 
when you try to describe the lightning world, you try to put some envelopes around it. Well, sometimes you don't do a very good job of that. You don't think about that, how that could impact a design. And I think we're into that phase right now is trying to figure out like what the heck is going on where lightning is catastrophically uh, failing blades because we got to fix it and i i saw some comments on linkedin i'm glad you brought this up actually because i saw some comments on linkedin over the last couple of weeks which said the industry group that defines the iec spec is starting to get together and they may produce an update in the next couple of years like come on are we really going to take that long? Because the problem is, is that we're going to build a whole bunch of wind turbines off offshore in the United States and everywhere else in the world. How, do we really? And they're all going to have carbon fiber in them. They have to because they're, they're like 100 meter blades. You have to have some level of carbon in them. Have we really got this lightning thing figured out? Yes or no? And, and, and we better get it figured out before we put a couple hundred turbines off the coast of you know Virginia or Maryland or wherever, and then find out we have this massive problem. Uh, that would be bad. So there's a, there's there's just like this little pocket of lightning knowledge that's just not well understood yet, and we need to get it figured out like now, really fast now, because the the results on a 15 megawatt turbine. Uh, uh, are going to be really bad versus a, a six megawatt or two megawatt. That that's that's my take on this. So you know, hopefully there wasn't a lightning failure. That's the hope up in Norway. But if it is, it just then it is. It, it, then we need to be doing something about it. Just the, more than just fixing the blade. We need to get to to the root cause of what's driving these weird lightning reactions. Root cause. It's a good time for a uh, blade pun. Anyone? 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 Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. we'll, we'll, we'll move on and leave that one um, teed up. So uh, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory just announced that they've uh, 3D printed a 13-meter 13 mil- 13 turbine blade from recyclable resin. Um, so, Rosemary, you're our, our resident uh, blade design expert. What stands out? Obviously, we've talked about thermoplastic blades a bunch in the last six months or so, um, but this was one of their first uh, one of the first pieces they have to show for it. What what sticks out as important about this this news story? Uh, th- that it's actual doing rather than uh, on paper design. You know, the whole time that I've been working with composites, which is yeah, uh, well, well over a decade, people have been talking about thermoplastic <laughs> wind turbine blades and making designs. I, I know in my PhD research, I started something a study that's at least ten years old that um, is. Uh, a full-length wind turbine blade design out of thermoplastic. Um, I, I can't remember how long it was, like 60, 80 metres, something like that. There's no there's no problem. You, you've always been able to design it. I've got no doubt that it would work. Um, the reason that they're not made is because they end up more expensive because, um, yeah, basically the, you know, the, the properties, structural properties haven't been there in the past and well I, I don't know if they are now some people say that them they've found thermoplastic resins that are as good as um, thermosets and I haven't seen the evidence of that yet but yeah the point is that when you use a material that's less strong and specifically less stiff for its weight then you end up needing a heavier blade to get the same structural properties you know they need to be stiff enough to not hit the tower under heavy winds and strong enough to not not break you know in that one in a hundred year storm um and 
that that's the extent of it. It's not that it's not technically um, possible. It's that it's not uh, economically viable to make blades like this. So now we've got, um, you know, some people actually making a 13 meter blade. So, you know, it's obviously not close to full scale. On the one hand, it's, it's progress because, you know, we're actually doing and finding out, you know, the um, issues that happen from um, physically doing something rather than just um, talking about it. But on the other hand, I, I didn't feel like a huge leap of anything really in the reporting because I don't think anyone would have doubted 10 years ago that you could print a um, three or maybe the 3D printing part of it wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. But, you know, that there's nothing that really surprises me about this being possible. Um, it's just a matter of actually doing it. Well, what happens next? So say they print three of these and they look great. Is there a turbine to put them on? Like, do they go in someone, does like the CFO take it home and puts it in his backyard? Like, where <laughs> yeah, does it go? I don't know. Again, it's the economics, you know, until you can make a, a blade for a turbine that someone wants to buy in this way, then it won't change anything. Um, and so uh, I'm kind of on the fence because, um, you know, on the one hand, we're, we're actually, you know, doing stuff and progressing towards it. But on the other hand, um, like, are we going to take turbine sizes back to, you know, 13 meter long blades just so that we can have the blades be recyclable? I don't, I don't think so. Um, so well, what about distributed yeah. wind? I mean, there's still some smaller models and of course distributed wind has not hit its stride and really taken off and it could, um, in different parts of the U S but I mean, do you feel like that could be an avenue? Yeah. If you start at 13 meters, they can slowly tick up to where that's going to make sense on one of their turbines. I mean, there's, is there's a place for distributed wind, but it's not the same. It's not the same thing that these multi megawatt turbines are doing and they never will yeah. be. And there's, you mm, know, yeah. like laws of physics that um, can tell you why they never will be. It's not just a matter of, oh, we need to, you know, work, make more of them and have costs come down. It's, it's just, um, it, it will take a lot to go into, <laughs> into now, but distributed wind is never going to replace big wind. Um, even if it might be a good complement, you know, assuming that you want, small wind turbines everywhere. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's such a big step currently, but I am happy that so many people are taking this issue seriously. And I think we will see progress, but I, I think we haven't seen it yet. Well, I'm going to keep you on the hook, Rosemary, as we, we pivot to Siemens Gamesa. They had a, a green hydrogen pilot project and they have produced their first green hydrogen, just like this friendly little turbine blade, um, that tap is now flowing. So, you know, it's a Siemens Gamesa 3.0 111DD. So that means 113 meter blades. Um, and this project is obviously in, in Denmark, um, where, you know, they're sort of at the forefront of all this. So, um, I mean, do you see these combination plants where they've got the green hydrogen production on site with the, the, the turbine? Do you see that going somewhere now that this is off and running, or is this still just still really early phase? Um, well, I I see this is a more exciting project to me that represents real progress. So I personally don't see it working out like that for green hydrogen in wind turbines, um, especially not offshore because you know maintenance is such a big thing for offshore and in general anything you can take and do onshore instead of offshore you you would so this seems like moving something offshore that doesn't really need to be there 
but there are several um, like legitimate technical um, advantages that you can have by by putting it there. So you know, like you'll save some some losses, some conversion losses if you just directly power the electrolyzer and nothing in between the you know the the rotor and the the electrolyzer. You don't need all the the cables and um, transformers and stuff. So that's that's a benefit. I know that there's also some different um, sizing optimization that you might do. You might choose a larger generator, for example, than you would if you needed to get the the power, um, the electricity onshore via cable. Um, there's <clears throat> there's quite a lot of like seemingly like significant but not that huge effects that all come into play. Um, and so that's for like the wind turbine um, electrolyzer. Thing. And then there's just the, you know, the idea that we're going to be using um, electrolyzers to help balance variable um, electricity generation, which I've always thought is just like crazy. It's never going to work out like that because, <clears throat> excuse me, because, you know, electrolyzers are very, like they cost a lot. So you want to be using it all the time. Like I just can't imagine anyone buying a really expensive electrolyzer and saying, yeah, we'll, we'll use it, you know, like 30% of the time. And I did notice in this project that they're starting to talk about putting batteries um, in there so that they can, you know, get a higher capacity factor for their electrolyzer. And I'm seeing that in other hydrogen projects as well. So it's kind of like none of the technologies are, are, are early at all. You know, we've had electrolyzers for a long, long time. We've had wind turbines for a long time. Um, but this way that we want to use them now is really new. There's all these different factors. It's a bit complex to kind of know exactly how it's going to work out. And so I do think we need projects like this to just say, okay, you know, like how does this end up working and, and, and um, what's the most economic way to run something like this? And I really feel glad that we're starting to see action on hydrogen now instead of just, you know, at like the last two, three years, there's been so much talk about the possibilities and like announcements of, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars being spent. But there's been no progress towards, you know, like actually figuring out some of those technical challenges um, that need to be solved, you know, to see this huge hydrogen economy that everyone imagines. So I'm really glad that now this year we are finally starting to see people actually build physical projects, figure out what are the problems going to be, what's the um, economic impact going to be, we'll be able to make a plan for the future much better once, you know, um, we've got a few more of these, uh, yeah, like some more actual experienced operation of, of these kinds of systems. Because, it's yeah, it's one thing to have mature technologies, but when you're using them in a totally new way, you're, it's not that mature. So, yeah, really, really excited to see, <laughs> see projects starting. The green hydrogen thing, I'm, I'm not sure how this is really going to play out. I think there's definitely applications for it, like probably in the mining industry in Australia, actually, that it may make sense to, to do that to reduce CO2 emissions overall. And there's places in the United States that it could be very useful. I'm, it's just really getting the technology put together. Like Rosemary is saying, it, it's, it's more of a technology thing than anything else. And I, I think the, the battery aspect is a really important part of this, too. Like if you're producing energy and you're and you're having an electrolyzer, you want to keep the electrolyzer running. You need to have some sort of energy buffer in the middle of this, and I I think that's the missing link right now. And in fact, I was looking at the sort of battery storage uh, companies this morning, trying to figure out like what's going on there because that's to me is the missing link. Like inexpensive battery storage is the missing link. It, it helps both sides. It helps the green hydrogen thing and it helps on the renewable energy side. 
So I looked up Form Energy's stock price because stock prices are indicative of where the investors think the company's going to be six months, a year from now. And their stock price is down, like down enough where it's a little worrisome because of the announcement. I thought after the announcement earlier in the spring that they would be skyrocketing up in value with all the, the names and associations with Tesla and all the technology people there because that's the missing link. But the industry and the investors are not super excited about it. That's worrisome to me. So there must be something that I don't see, either a cost or a technology limitation or a size limitation or some regulatory hurdle that I I haven't put my finger on yet where no one's excited about it. And it may have a lot to do with inflation, honestly. It may be saying like, well, inflationary prices are going to be so crazy that renewables are going to be hard to do and we're going to be stuck with some oil burning, natural gas burning factories for the time being and everything gets shoved to the right. I'm not sure that makes sense right now. So, Rosemary, I think you're totally right. I think there's definitely applications for green hydrogen, but we got to get the, the the energy storage piece in the middle of it, and that's not there yet. And that's the worst in part. It's kind of funny, though, because a lot of the hydrogen hype was about its ability to be energy storage. And that's one of the aspects that I've always been the most skeptical about because I just couldn't imagine the business case. And, um, yeah, now we're seeing – I mean, it's why it's such a fun, fun uh, you know, field to be involved in at this time, right, because you don't really know precisely how things are going to work together. But, you know, what seemed like six months ago, batteries versus hydrogen, now it seems more like batteries plus hydrogen versus, you know, fossil fuels or yeah. – or whatever. So I find it really interesting to see how things are evolving and changing. And, you know, the more unpredictable it is, the more exciting it is, I guess, for, you know, for a, an energy geek to <laughs> to follow. Well, let me throw this at you. So the discussion in the United States 10 years ago was about using nuclear energy, nighttime nuclear energy to create things like hydrogen. Is that off the table still? No, I think people are still still talking about that. Um, yeah, because I mean, so nuclear, it's a you know, big benefit is that it's baseload. But on the other hand, we don't actually use energy in that way. You, no, know, right. you know, like it's a solid band. So it's like its plus side is also it's negative when taken to extremes. So um, yeah, no, I definitely still see nuclear proponents um, talking that up, but it relies on it being the, the cheapest, um, the cheapest form of of energy, I guess. And again, you know, if you're trying to make hydrogen to match what your energy system is otherwise doing, then you're, you're not... Like, I just can't imagine someone with a hydrogen electrolyzer, they're making a very valuable product hydrogen. They're not just going to make that when their energy is cheap. They're going to make it whenever the you know electricity price is just below whatever threshold it is that allows them to make a profit on their hydrogen. So, um, of, of course, they're, they're going to be using that as much as they can. Um, so I've never really thought that it was such a suitable technology for energy balancing when you know the energy cost is such a... Um, is not the biggest the biggest component. You know, the capital cost is really important for uh, for an electrolyzer. So to me, it makes more sense that other industries that are really much more based around electricity prices, they would be the ones that would be you know like really ramping up and down depending on the on the price. But yeah, um, yeah it's uh, we haven't seen heaps of that yet. So last on our lineup today is an interesting story about the power grid in general and the stability of it and. Uh, the story from Wired reports that a, a a DJI drone piloted by a still unknown this man was man or woman was not caught um, 
approached a Pennsylvania power substation with essentially two ropes hanging down with a with a thick copper wire between them. So if you can imagine like a U-shaped um, thing hanging from the drone. And I guess the goal was what they were saying, the Department of, of Home, Homeland Security and the FBI said basically that the goal was to get over top of something, lower this down, then the wire touches and uh, create a sh- short circuit and disrupt the power supply that way. So obviously we, we talked a little bit, partly in jest, about you know a supervillain disrupting uh, subsea cables but the reality is that if a country wants to you know do acts of terrorism trying to disrupt operations in any other country they can certainly do and there's a lot of technology um in place including drones which are very difficult to detect very like they had they have not found this person because they the, the operator of the drone stripped the camera off the memory card and any other identifiable markings so if you know how to use one of these and how to kind of clean it up they might not be able to track you very well um, Alan, does this seem like this is going to be something that maybe Congress or um, other uh, governmental bodies are going to need to probably get ahead of now that there's been one of these officially registered on the board in the U.S.? I think the power industry has been aware of it for a number of years, and I think quietly behind the scenes they're trying to address it and find ways to deal with it. Uh, as, as we well know, you, if you want to cripple a nation, turn off its power. We saw, we've seen that in some uh, regional conflicts. If you remember during the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, that was one of the things that happened, I think, on the way out. They just started blowing up all of the power lines and basically taking the country offline. And I, that's the way to do it. And, and Dan, actually near you, not many years ago, uh, you remember there was an aerostat, which is kind of a blimp with a long rope on it, had cut loose. So there's a, an aerostat blimp sitting over sort of Baltimore, Washington, D.C., looking for incoming missiles that are headed towards Washington, D.C. And so it's an early detection thing. And it had come loose on its moorings. It started floating across up to Pennsylvania. And, of course, what does it come? What does it do? It drops this very conductive cable across these huge power lines and causes massive power failures on the way uh, until it finally crashed. And so the, the industry is very aware of a, a sort of air attacks on power lines. I think the question is, what are you going to do about it? And if someone really, really, really wants to get it done, I think there's not a lot you're going to be able to do besides try to quickly repair it and get it get it back in service again. Uh, we have all kinds of – well, and Dan, as you well know, we have limitations of where drones can fly. In fact, you can't fly a DJI drone in the area of Washington, D.C. It just won't fly there. I'm curious as to see if they've actually applied that to other high-risk areas like – power lines because you could do that obviously if you have malicious intent you could bypass that but still yeah because that's basically if you're taking like an off-the-shelf drone that has gps software in it all that stuff it's not going to be activated but yeah if you're savvy enough to want to do something terrible like this you're going to know how to disable that kind of stuff and you're just going to be sort of like a manual drone not subject to dji being able to control it like that yeah right yeah, but I think as as we go forward, Rosemary, don't you think that we're going to have a lot of cameras and systems to monitor the power lines, especially those critical critical routes like that feed New York City or that are feed San Francisco or Houston or Adelaide or Perth? That somebody's going to be you're going to have some sort of system watching what's going on to make sure that you don't have an attack like that. 
Yeah, probably. And I think, I mean, I'm probably more worried about cyber security, um, more so than <clears throat> these physical attacks. But it does remind me of, I, I was listening to, I can't remember which one. I was listening to some podcast recently, um, with a woman who worked for the California, um, grid in, in some capacity. And she was talking about, um, the reliability of their system. And, um, she mentioned that when there's like a high bushfire or forest fire, whatever you call them over there, when mm-hmm. there's a high risk for that and it's windy, then that will like preemptively shut down certain parts of the, the grid to avoid um, the yeah, power lines blowing over right. and causing a, a, a bushfire. Um, and she said, you know, people get like really annoyed about that because they have these blackouts all the time for something that, you know, didn't even happen. It was just a risk. And she was saying how one of the things that they're doing um, to counteract that is getting more like um, – Grids op- able to operate as an as an island for a period of time, so um, it works in combination with distributed energy. So you know, if yep. you've got some wind and solar, or even rooftop solar, pl- in combination with household and community batteries, then um, as long as you've got the grid set up right, then you can operate in island island mode. So it doesn't matter if you're, you're disconnected, um, and that that sort of you know work will make the whole grid a lot more um, reliable, and uh, it would also work if you know there was an, an attack like this so i think that it is um yeah just like part of the <laughs> the move from this like centralized to distributed uh, energy grid that we're that we're moving towards and there's benefits other than you know cleaning up the atmosphere there there are also security benefits when it's done right so yeah i think it'll be it's really interesting to see what they're doing in california and probably we'll see that sort of thing rolled out not just in bushfire prone areas but you know um everywhere it just helps with reliability well obviously alan we've had radar technology forever right so Mm -hmm. it can't be that hard to have some sort of you know, radar detection system in a substation or whatever, where it's just like we can monitor and I'm sure figure out what's a bird and what's a drone. The movement patterns, I'm sure, are quite <laughs> yes. different, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, is that something that's probably going to just end up being like standard um, security in- installation and in some of these things going forward? Well, I'm still surprised that you're allowed to walk up to high voltage lines right now. Like I can't walk onto an airport because there's a fence around it or some sort of barrier, natural barrier there. I can walk up to any high high voltage tower that I want to in America and do dramatic things to it. And I again, I think, what are you going to do? Put a fence around every tower? Probably not. I don't think that makes any sense. But I do think there's technology today that will help prevent some of these real catastrophic things from happening because it, it will be bad. It'll be really bad. All right, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Uptime. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, which is our weekly newsletter to keep you updated on everything wind and renewable energy, and to Rosemary's YouTube channel, which she continues to pump out great content each week, including live streams uh, sponsored by WeatherGuard. So thanks so much again for listening, and we'll see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. 
maximize the time efficiency of your techs, and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.